Open your Bible or navigate to John chapter 6 and to verse 41. If you're new or visiting, we are studying through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. John chapter 6, verses 41 through 59, that's our text. The topic, the Jews are offended when Jesus insists, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. The title of our message, You Are Who You Eat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We want it to uh, accomplish everything that you desire it to accomplish. We want you to speak to us between the soul and the spirit where only you can resonate. Show us Jesus, Lord, in his mercy and his love. Teach us grace. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Against my better judgment, I submitted my 23andMe DNA swab to learn more about my ancestry. I found out that a distant relative of mine in Sicily was a cannibal who ate five people. It was hard to digest. (laughs) It was no laughing matter the early Christians uh, were accused of cannibalism. Haters took Jesus and his disciples literally when they heard the teaching, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus was not advocating cannibalism. He was speaking metaphorically. Jesus came as God in human flesh to offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the world. We partake of his flesh by believing. Believing is how you eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus came as God in human flesh to be your suitable sacrifice. And number two, Jesus came as God in human flesh to be your spiritual sustainer. Let's take a look at Jesus as our sacrifice in verses 41 through 51. Benjamin Buford Bubba Blue expounded his dream to Forrest saying, Shrimp is the fruit of the sea. You can barbecue it, boil it, broil it, bake it, saute it. There's shrimp kebabs, shrimp crayole, shrimp gumbo, pan-fried, deep-fried, stir-fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. Hopefully the Israelites in the Exodus from Egypt had their own Bubba who could suggest recipes. In Exodus we read that the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. You can bet they thought of a lot of different ways of cooking manna. Christian singer-songwriter Keith Green suggested manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patty, and everyone's favorite, manna bread. (laughs) Jesus had miraculously fed a multitude numbering upwards of 10,000, including women and children. He walked on the waves coming to the aid of the 12 who were caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was the next day, and some from the multitude he had fed boarded uh, boats to find him in Capernaum. We're picking up in the middle of a dialogue about the bread of life that took place as Jesus taught in the local synagogue. And so verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Mr. Incredible thinks a superhero's identity is his most valuable possession. People are always skeptical when they discover their neighbor or co-worker is from Krypton, not Smallville. Jesus had relocated from Nazareth to Capernaum. His neighbors thought they knew him. They were shocked to hear him claim that he came from heaven. Your neighbors think they know you, and then one day you get saved, right? And you start preaching the gospel, and it's like, isn't that Gene? What happened to that guy? He went crazy. He's been reading the Bible, and we all know that you read that, you go crazy. That was my dad's favorite thing. He said, if you read the Bible too much, which means at all, you go crazy. And uh, I don't know what excuse my brothers had, because they didn't read the Bible, and they were crazy. But anyway, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur amongst yourselves, murmuring, grumbling, complaining. I like the word murmur, don't you? It's, it sounds like what it is. All the people, are you murmuring? No, not me. These indicate a lack of contentment with the Lord. We always think it's our spouse or our kids or our fellow workers and uh, that since they are so lame, it's okay to murmur about them or grumble and complain when it is, in fact, always a sin. To quote Tom Hanks, are you murmuring? There's no murmuring in Christianity or something like that. The Apostle Paul wrote, do all things without murmuring. Learn to be content. And so there's a direct relationship. A discontent person murmurs, and your discontent is always with the Lord because we believe that he is in charge of our lives and has put us where he wants us to be. But Pastor Gene, what about the way I'm being treated? G. Campbell Morgan writes, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. You should be treated worse than you are. Now, I'm not predicting that. I'm not hoping for that. But in, instead of us worrying as Christians why we're being treated so poorly, we should be wondering why we're not being treated worse. Because Jesus said, they will hate me and they will hate you. Uh, and so don't murmur, don't grumble, don't complain. It really should be worse. Not that it could always be worse. That's not an argument. You know, and people say, well, it could be worse. Okay, it's still bad. Uh, but uh, it should be worse. You should be excited to be persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake. It's not uncommon for a person to have a heart murmur. In fact, my cat, Jacko, has a heart murmur. We've been following it for some time. I talk to him about it at night. I try and keep him calm. It can be an indicator of underlying heart disease. It is always an indicator of spiritual heart disease. And so if you're prone to mumble, murmuring and mumbling and grumbling and complaining, uh, then stop it. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. As far as I can tell, all Christians agree that no one can come to God unless they are drawn. God must take the initiative in our salvation, and he must do all the work. The question that remains is, who does God draw? We answer by quoting Jesus, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That's in John chapter 12, verse 22, or 32. There are theologies out there that limit the word all by saying it is only those predestined to be saved, or only some form of, uh, or only some rather, of all the world's people groups, uh, you know, so nobody is left out. But uh, Strong's Concordance says the word all means every or whosoever. Uh, that's not the, you know, it's not the complete. Uh, Greek on it, 
but I don't know Greek, and you probably don't know Greek, and so we go with what we got, right? And uh, Strong says the word itself means just what you think it means, all, every, whosoever. If your theology limits God, maybe it's time to reevaluate your theology. There is no single system of theology that is the correct one. You're not going to find that because a system of theology is man-made. It is Certainly it's using the Bible, but it's man-made and we all have our biases and prejudices. And if there could be one perfect theology, then the person who came up with it would know as much as God. He would in fact be God, and so there, there isn't. And so I establish that to say that there are a number of solid systematic theologies you can adopt as a Christian. The problem with so many people is they think only theirs is right. Major Ian W. Thomas writes, to, to many people, the Lord is in danger of being no more than the patron saint of their systematic theology instead of the Christ who is our life. So whatever theology you hold to, systematic theology, it's slightly wrong in some areas. It has to be. It's off because none of them are perfect. If you are going to adopt a systematic theology, why not adopt one that is inclusive? Whosoever will, rather than one that condemns the vast majority of human beings to eternal conscious punishment. And so once you understand that, hey, I have a choice to make, I can believe various things and still remain a Christian, there are some orthodox foundational beliefs that every Christian must adhere to, but when it comes to a doctrine like election, let's say, there are at least five different views on election held by people with various different theologies, and none of them is 100% correct. So why not pick one that sounds gracious and merciful and that invites all men to receive Christ rather than one that uh, shuts the door at, really on the vast majority of the human race? All are drawn by the influence of Jesus' death on the cross. However, you shouldn't think of being drawn as an irresistible force compelling you against your will. Dr. Charles Xavier has vast mental powers and can compel others to do his will. God doesn't draw you by invading your mind and compelling you. It is possible to resist the grace of God. Stephen, moments from martyrdom, told the Jews, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. All are drawn, but it does not follow that all will be saved. Those drawn who believe are secure in the Lord with his promise, I will lift him up, which means resurrect him the last day. So verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God, Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus quoted Isaiah from a passage addressing Jews in the future kingdom of God on earth. Knowledge of the Lord will be everywhere. There won't be any resistance to posting the Ten Commandments or to having school prayer. You know, these things that, these, that we get into and they keep taking things away from Christians in the public square. You, you know, every year there's a new city that uh, some council person gets up and says, yeah, I don't think we should have a manger scene and there's all these fights, you know, with, and all. Uh, that's the world we live in now. But when Jesus reigns in the future, uh, it's not going to be like that. In fact, the Ten Commandments are going to be the rule of law. Most of the topics we discuss uh, now are politics and news. That's all going to be replaced by discussions about the Lord. There will be one political party, the Jesus party, and there will be no elections. Talk about election fraud. There's no elections. There's just Jesus. Yeah. 
and, and ruling and reigning in righteousness and you and I in our glorified bodies ruling and reigning beside him. And, and so uh, the Lord reminds the Jews of the glories of their kingdom. Now when the Jews rejected the offer of the kingdom, it was put on hold. The mystery of the church was revealed. We live in the gap until Jesus comes to resurrect and rapture us, and then his program with Israel will begin again. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Daniel LaRusso got beat up by the Cobra Kai and told his mom, I got to take karate, not at the Y, at a good school. Mr. Miyagi stepped in. Daniel could not have asked for a better teacher. We always want to learn from the best. Often there is a long wait list to be taught by the best or it is simply too expensive. And so we end up at some why. You can only learn about God the Father from one person, Jesus, who has seen the Father. Jesus says, I've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. What do you want to know? Buddha says something. Muhammad said something. Confucius say something. Everybody says something. They don't know nothing. They don't know anything. They've never seen the Father. They don't know the Creator. They make up these systems. And so Jesus comes along and He's the authority. He's the expert. I feel like people don't want to wait to listen to Jesus say, oh, yeah, he, He's too expensive or He's too far out. I want to listen to this other guy where I can contribute to my own salvation. And that's basically it. It's a pride that we have because we want to contribute something to being saved. And God says, Man, you're fortunate for the plan of salvation because there is nothing in you righteous by which you can be saved. And yet all, every other world religion and philosophy, there's something you can do and must do in order to be saved. Jesus said, I've seen the Father. He says, most surely I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Could that be any plainer? What do you need to have everlasting life? You believe in Jesus. Jesus didn't say, believe and eat my flesh and drink my blood. He didn't have to say it because believing is eating. Believing is represented by that metaphor. Beware of all those who had anything to believing. Typically, we would cite baptism as something certain groups believe that is necessary for salvation. It is not. Baptism is a command. We should uh, obey the Lord. Uh, but you can be saved and go to heaven without being baptized. I came across a list of more subtle things that people add to the gospel. Some of these we're familiar with. Legalism, that's when we add our own rules and regulations or pick certain things from the Bible that are important to keep, and if we don't keep those, then we can't be saved. There's a formalism that the Bible warns about. It's having a form of godliness outwardly, but no power. In, in other words, no salvation. We would say those in what are called the liberal church that doesn't believe in things like the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in his physical body, uh, they have a form of godliness. They're having church this morning with robes and candles and all of this kind of thing, but there's no uh, salvation. Then there's mysticism. That can include just Eastern mysticism and all that kind of stuff, or, or even in a different sense, just a desire to see uh, God do uh, almost magical things, mystical things. And then there's activism, distorting the gospel by insisting that an important issue but non-biblical issue is an ultimate issue that everybody needs to get behind. Jesus goes on and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. 
It came from heaven, but manna could not impart eternal life. It was meant to be symbolic of the future bread of life from heaven that would impart eternal life. Uh, Old Testament, Exodus, they're thirsty. God tells Moses to strike the rock uh, and uh, water comes out. Metaphor. They're hungry, complaining about their food. God says, I'm going to send you manna for the next 40 years. Metaphor. Uh, Don't take it as anything more than metaphorical. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I like the way one commentator put it. The manna bread that came down has been replaced and fulfilled by the man bread who has also come down. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus summarized, claiming he fulfilled the metaphor. But then he added something new, saying, I shall give my flesh. What? Who said anything about dying? Well, dying was the plan all along, and Jesus is trying to catch up this audience to what's really going on. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord preached the gospel to the first human sinners. He would come as the seed of a woman and be wounded in a winner-take-all confrontation with the devil. A few minutes later, the Lord gave them some indication of the seriousness of this wounding when he killed animals to provide covering for their nakedness. It served to teach them that their sin could only be atoned for by the shedding of blood of an innocent substitutionary sacrifice. And you can put that together with the fact that uh, Jesus, uh, you know, he said he would be wounded, and you can understand a little bit more about what's going on. And then a few chapters later in Genesis, you read about the near sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham, the father of our faith. It was a type prefiguring the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, Abraham was told to take his only begotten son and, and kill him, sacrifice him on the mount, Mount Moriah. He was, his hand was stilled, of course. He didn't go through with it. Centuries later, God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ, would at that same area be sacrificed. And so it was a type of what would have to take place. There would have to be a wounding of the substitutionary sacrifice. He would have to die for the sins of the world. By the way, last Wednesday we had a really marvelous teaching on Genesis 22. You definitely should listen to that uh, on uh, the podcast or wherever we broadcast it. But I think you get the idea. The Lord worked out the plan of salvation progressively in human history. During the holidays, the Fox Theater requires not money but a donation of food as their ticket price. An expired can of Suffren Succotash won't get you in the rest of the year. You must always have a suitable form of payment. God in human flesh voluntarily dying in your place is the one and only suitable sacrifice by which you must be saved. Secondly, we're talking about spiritual sustainment in verses 52 to 59. Did you hear about the cannibal who converted to Roman Catholicism? He only eats fishermen on Fridays. There's something about cannibal jokes that attract me. I don't know what it is. I, there's just a million of them. And, and uh, anytime I get it, you know, if you've been here any length of time, anytime I get a chance to give a cannibal joke, I, I got to do it. But anyway, how many do I have? That's it. 
Jesus' comments about eating his flesh and drinking his blood have caused no small controversy. A Roman Catholic resource puts it this way, something happened at that last meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, something that had never happened before, Ordinary bread and wine were transformed into the body and blood of Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity. At every Mass, bread and wine become Jesus, his blood, his body, soul, and divinity. John Trapp writes, The fathers commonly expounded this part of our Savior's sermon as spoken of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and so fell into error that none but communicants could be saved. In other words, they added communion to the uh, you to believe and take communion and in the Roman Catholic tradition as I understood it growing up in it was that you had to t uh, go to mass every Sunday and receive communion or you couldn't be saved in the end and then John Trapp goes on and he says wherefore as account of this way of thinking and this teaching this is what it leads to they gave the sacrament to infants and they put it into the mouths of dead men if you need to be believe in Jesus and have communion to be saved, then when you die, they're going to shove wafers in your mouth. And that's going to be a, a hope that God will say, okay, I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, it's very strange when you get into this stuff. We reject this doctrine. It's called transubstantiation. The communion elements have no literal or mystical connection to Jesus' physical body. We hold what scholars call a memorial view of the Lord's Supper that sees its celebration as a remembrance of Jesus did on the cross. Why would we call it a remembrance? Because the Apostle Paul quoted Jesus saying to us, do this in remembrance of me. We can't simply say that the elements are metaphorical. We need to show that they are. We can. One commentator writes in John chapter 6 verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. The requirement for eternal life is to behold the Son and to believe in him. The promised results are that a believer has eternal life and Jesus will raise him up on the last day. Then in John 6:54, it says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are exactly the same results as in verse 40. But instead of beholding the Son and believing in him, Jesus substitutes eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Since things equal to the same thing are equal to each other, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood refer to believing in his death on the cross as your only hope for eternal life. Augustine in the 4th century wrote, Believe and you have eaten. He went on to write, figuratively, Jesus is in the bread and wine, and spiritually he is in them that worthily eat and drink the bread and the wine, but really, carnally and corporally, he is in heaven. And so that's our uh, position on that. Makes sense. It's reverent. Uh, and uh, it, it accomplishes a great deal more, more in the hearts of a believer to have Jesus as a remembrance uh, rather than a mystical presence. John 6.52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The Jews were acting like Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy. They took literally Jesus' obviously metaphorical statement. Their thoughts drifted to cannibalism. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day.
This sounds all communion-y, but it's not. Jesus did not initiate what we call the Lord's Supper until at least a year after this event. And so even though he's talking about things that we would identify as the communion elements, he doesn't have communion in mind. He's talking to them about the Old Testament metaphor of the bread of life coming down from heaven. We make those connections because we're not Jews. We immediately think of communion. No Jew in that crowd would have thought of Passover or anything like the Lord's Supper. And Jesus kept focusing on the manna, the manna, the manna. And so keep it in context. Don't, uh, don't, uh, you can't just uh, appropriate it any way we want to. Verse 55, for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Coca-Cola claims it's the real thing. Jesus' flesh and blood, his body sacrificed for you, that is the real, real thing when it comes to salvation. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a kid reading comics, I was always fascinated by codes and decoder rings you could purchase. Also, sea monkeys. <laughs> Finally had those. They're not really monkeys. I was disappointed. Luckily, I had glasses that could see through x-ray vision and stuff like that. But anyway, comic books were great. All the ads on the back, anybody who bought into that. And then, you know, it's before the internet, before credit. Really, kids. There was a time when there was no credit. Everything had to be paid for. I don't know how you bought stuff. You know, it was like COD. Your UPS guy had to take your money from you. You paid him at the door. It was crazy. What kind of a world was that? I feel like it was the Stone Age. The Fred Flintstone of Calvary or something. But anyway, uh, I don't know why I got into all that. Probably because my mind is gone. But anyway, earlier we said that eating is believing. It sounds like an enigma, but what if we used it as a code? to kind of break up what Jesus is saying. If we did, a paraphrase of verse 56 might be, if you want an intimate, abiding relationship with me, believe that by the sacrifice of my flesh and blood on the cross, you are saved, and I will abide in you, enabling you to abide in me. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. The word sent reminds us that for the purpose of saving us, Jesus took upon himself a body of flesh, adding humanity to his deity. He subordinated himself to his Father, and he was sent by the Father. Let's use our decoder again. The living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who believes on me will live because of me. Verse 58 This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus claimed to be the superior bread. Moses and their ancestors all died, but Jesus and his followers will live forever. That's some kind of superiority, right? I mean, who do you follow in that case? Moses would say, hey, this is the guy I was telling you about. This is the bread I was telling you about. He's here. It's here. Let's go. Manna was a type of Jesus sent from heaven to be your sacrifice. He who believes this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This was a more formal dialogue because he was invited into the synagogue to give the Sabbath message. A few commentators point out that earlier in the chapter, the hearers are called the Jews which is a change from uh, just the multitude. And sometimes in the Gospels, the, the phrase, the Jews, signifies 
the authorities or the leaders or somebody who had authority, not just a common Jew, but someone who was maybe reporting back to the Sanhedrin or was the synagogue ruler or something like that. And so now it's the Jews who are having a problem. Uh, the gospel remains the same in any setting, formal or informal, academic or casual, friend or stranger. The gospel cannot be diluted, must not be. You can certainly target your audience and be contemporary, but in the end, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is Paul the Apostle's de uh, de definition of the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter about the resurrection from the dead. And so present it in ways that make sense to people, uh, but don't forget to bring the gospel and the idea that people need to be saved from sin. Now, speaking of bodies and flesh, Jesus spoke of the last day four times in this chapter, verse 39 and 40, 44 and 54. You will be raised up the last day. For us, the last day is the resurrection and the rapture of the church. The dead in Christ are raised first, and we which are alive and remain will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And so all of us that are Christians in this room, that we've been born again, uh, you're believers in Jesus Christ, uh, you, you might die physically. If you die physically, your body goes into the ground or wherever it happens to go, depending on the circumstances. Your spirit is immediately alive in the presence of the Lord in heaven. It's consciously alive and aware. It has substance. And you are awaiting Jesus' return to resurrect your body uh, and pull its elements together and like a seed, uh, you know, in the ground coming out as something glorified. And then when that happens, it could happen right now, uh, that the Lord could come and resurrect. And I'm hoping it comes before I die, but if not, I'll, I'm still going to be raised from the dead. But it could happen right now, and then we're alive, so what happens to us? Well, God says you'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, given our glorified bodies, and then we'll be caught up. And so that is the last day that's being talked about here for us. You can be confident that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that completion is your full glorification in a glorified human body, fit for eternity, a body that has free will but is incapable of sinning. You say, well, wait a minute, how can a free will being not sin? God is a free will being who cannot sin. And, and we somehow, I can't explain it. I can't explain how I can have a free will and not sin. Adam and Eve had a free will and they sinned. But God has a free will and does not sin and cannot sin. And, and we will be like that. Not as God, but we will have that capability. Jesus abides in you. J.I. Packer writes, For the Christian... The best is always yet to be. Our Father's wealth is immeasurable, and we will inherit the entire estate. You know, there's times in our lives, and some, for some people it's their whole life, when the only thing you have is to look forward to that final day when you'll be resurrected. Life is miserable for some people, right? Uh, especially when you get out of uh, Western countries and into the rest of the world. But we can be sure, if we're Christians, that we will be raised the last day. And eternity will wipe out any thought uh, and any sorrow and wash away every tear. Let's finish with these words of R.A. Torrey. The Holy Spirit is the person who imparts to the individual believer the power that belongs to God. This is the Holy Spirit's work in the believer to take what belongs to God and make it ours.
If you've noticed over the past year, I think, in the Gospel of John especially, the emphasis on, our, on what we've been talking about has been on recognizing the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person who indwells you and that God will not give you anything to do that he doesn't enable you to do. He cannot command you to do something, or would not, I should say, to do something you cannot do. Just like you, if you're a good parent, don't ask your children to do things they're incapable of and then discipline them for it. It, you would, that would be cruel. That would be abusive. And so anything I read in God's word that the Lord says to do or that I can do, I can do it by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The problem is, I think for me and for most of us, is though even though we get saved by believing alone, we can't help but sneak in our own personality afterwards and start thinking of ways that we help God along. And so I, I believe, but I, I'm also a good person in this area, or I gave up this, or I do that. And, and then we forget the power of the indwelling spirit. It's why you can get saved and immediately not be addicted to alcohol or drugs anymore. It's just gone. It, it, it's incredible. Many of you have that testimony. But then what happens? 10 years later, 20 years later, 50 years later, you fall into addiction because you're not depending on the power of the Holy Spirit anymore. There's some kind of cooperation between you and the Spirit that doesn't work because all you're going to do is hold him back. And so believe. If you're not a believer today in Jesus Christ, believing will give you eternal life. Believe Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. If you are a believer, believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And whatever it is you're struggling with, uh, you, you may do it haltingly or lamely at first, but you can do it. You can grow in it, but you can do it. Let's pray.